God calls us out of our sin, out of our rebellion. He calls us out of our work to come and to find our rest in Him. As we begin our worship today, let's just take a moment of pause. Good morning. Our call to worship is from Psalm 18. If you'd stand, we'll sing together. of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me.
salvation and my refuge. Though the flood may keep on rising and the sun refuse to shine, His faithfulness will never change. In my distress I cry, how long? Yeah. 
please join me in our prayer for a prayer of invocation. Our Father in heaven, we gather together this morning to praise your great love for us and to remember your mighty strength. You have been our rock, a fortress and stronghold in whom we take refuge. And in Jesus Christ, you have rescued us and delivered us from the power of sin and death. For some of us, our week has been one of knowing and experiencing your strength and salvation in a clear and intimate way. We thank you for the way you have been at work in our lives and in the midst of our congregation to remind us that you are still actively providing for your people, that Jesus is the risen and true king of the world, and your spirit is bringing people to Christ as he makes all things new. Yet, Lord, for many of us, we feel as if the earth beneath our feet is reeling, rocking, and quaking. We are unable to stand upright, staggering and looking for something to hold on to. The things that we thought were firm foundations feel as if they have been taken away, and that which seemed impervious now seems vacillating and unsteady. We think of our family, friends, or ourselves who face illness and disease. We think of those who face financial or legal hardships or troubles. And we think of parents who have lost their children through acts of terror, warfare, or disease and of all the youth who face a broken world. In such a world, we ask, where are you? But once again, by your word and sacrament, in the power of your spirit, you direct our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one you have sent to call us into your family, the weak and foolish of the world, the despised and forsaken. Father, we are your helpless children, but our Lord Jesus told us that to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So we come to him for his blessing, receiving your kingdom with open, expectant hands. He brings us good news and binds up our broken hearts. So it is in his name we pray. Amen. At this time, children are dismissed for children's worship. So now we enter in our, into our time of confession and assurance. And just to remind us that knowing our inner poverty and brokenness is always an opportunity to come before God, to confess our sin and need before him because he knows us better than we know ourselves. Let's confess corporately and after our song, we'll have a time of silent confession. This is what God told his people. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that is your neighbor's. Almighty God, your word teaches us to seek the good of our neighbors and to love them as we love ourselves. But we confess that we are prone to be dissatisfied and envy the situations of others. Help us to trust Jesus' words that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Help us to be content through the strength of your spirit. Amen.
Let's take this moment to silently confess our sins before God. Merciful God, because of our gentle Jesus, we're able to confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please rise so we can speak the words of assurance to one another that God forgives our sins. Join me. The Lord is our hiding place. He preserves us from trouble and surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. As God has welcomed us into his family through Christ. Let us welcome one another in the name of Jesus.
Testament lesson this morning is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. 
they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And the gospel lesson is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robin, for reading God's word for us. It's good to be with you this morning and to look into God's word. Um, We have been in a series called Known and Loved, and today we're going to explore another story of God's love uh, from the New Testament now. We'll look at the Apostle Paul's experience of God's love in his own life and in uh, the experience of starting a church in Corinth. And it's my hope that as we try to see more clearly how Jesus is drawing Paul to himself, we might see, in fact, how Jesus is drawing near to us. So what comes to us today in our passage are the words of a recovering Pharisee. We need to remember that the writer of these words was once called Saul. And as an aspiring leader of that intensely strict and focused renewal movement, Pharisaism, he demonstrated the zeal of a true overachiever. Listen to how he lists his own religious accomplishments for the church at Philippi. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's pretty good. But perhaps it's worth um, us pausing and asking, what is it that compels Paul to achieve this status, the status of a Hebrew of Hebrews? Well, despite his many accomplishments, there was, of course, one thing lacking, his connection to the homeland. He was not a hometown boy who turned good. He did not grow up near Jerusalem. He was, in fact, part of the Jewish diaspora, that scattered population of Israelites that were cast out or sent away or drawn away from their historic homeland. In fact, Saul hailed from Tarsus, the capital city of a Roman province called Cilicia, and what is now today southern Turkey. Now, why is this important? Well, I believe it tells us something really, really interesting about Paul. It explains a lot about his life. So much of what we can piece together of his life gives me the impression that he is doing whatever he can to fit in, to find his place among his people. 
Now, of course, none of this escapes God's sight. Just the opposite, actually. After Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus, where he was headed to persecute more Christians, he redeploys Paul's old identity for a new mission. And it's out of great compassion for him. Not a sense of irony or humor or payback, but out of a great love for Paul that Christ commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm sure that came as quite a shock to Paul, right? I mean, everything has changed in this moment. And he's probably thinking, you know, it would be nice to go back to all of his classmates in rabbi seminary. I mean, he finally has the answers that they've been looking for. And now he can unlock the whole of God's word for them. Just think of the career he could have had. He would have been a spiritual and intellectual celebrity. But instead of leading his own people and the mission to his own people, Paul was going to end up visiting cities full of idols and emperor cults and debauchery and witchcraft and hedonism and all sorts of other terrible pagan problems. What a waste, right? Believe it or not, he wasn't bitter about what could have been. Instead, he reflects with these words, but whatever I gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The beauty of how Christ is working in the life of Paul was really put to the test when he arrived in Corinth. He had survived Macedonia and even <laughs> he'd even survived Athens. But what he faced in Corinth nearly broke him. It was perhaps one of the most hostile places he would ever have to navigate. Having been recently reconstituted and appointed as an imperial outpost, Corinth was a boomtown flush with new money, flush with building projects that would rival any Grecian city. And as a port and an important commercial center, it had all the typical problems of a city full of sailors and merchants. By the time that Paul gets there, the name of the city had become a slang term for misbehaving to Corinthianize. Now, I have to think that this was the last place that Paul's grandmother would want him to ever end up, right? <laughs> but it's the particular challenges of this place that prompt Paul to adopt a particular mode of delivering his message. And we get, now to be sure, he doesn't alter the content of his message, but he dramatically altered the way in which he shared it. So from our passage today, we can see 
not only how he presented that message, but he gives us an indication of why he presented it in this way. So let's, let's look at our passage. I'm going to read it for us from uh, the order of worship, but feel free to follow along in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word given for our good. Now we've already traced the steps that led Paul to Corinth. And now we can consider how he would come to write such arresting words. And that'll be our first question. How does Paul come to write these words to the Corinthian sisters and brothers? And secondly, what do we do with them? How might we enable these words to help us feel known and loved by God? So what prompted these words from Paul? Well, even like a quick and cursory reading of the letter indicates that there are, in fact, several very serious issues at stake in the church. Within the community of the church, dysfunction raged. In the relating to the culture around them, compromise persisted. But right off the bat, Paul goes to the matter of rampant divisions. There was a partisan spirit growing in the church and in their community, and it was threatening to undo their unity in Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, just before what, we, what I just read, Paul gives the indication of how these divisions were manifesting themselves. He actually quotes the Corinthians, and, the, and the, their, their like party spirit and Verse 12, he says, each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, 
I follow Cephas or eh, eh, I follow Christ, right? Now that's how it presented, but the deeper issue beneath these divisions is one of status anxiety. Status anxiety, that is one philosopher's term for what we might feel as the crippling insecurity that comes from always worrying about how we look in front of others and how to keep up appearances and how to maintain the appearance of some high status. So just like their Corinthian neighbors, the church was gripped with a sense of insecurity and they needed to prove themselves. And they let the stratifying sensibilities of the city invade their little church and wreck their common bond in Christ. Because they were looking for anything to boast about, even at church. Now this is a colossal mistake, according to Paul. And as one New Testament scholar says, the fact that the early Christian assembly brought together people of diverse rank and background who acknowledged one another, who actually called one another brother and sister, was one of its most distinctive characteristics. That was their good stuff. That was like some of the best stuff they got. The mixed composition of their community was an astounding miracle in their time, just like it is in ours. But they had tragically lost sight of that, and that is sad. It really is very sad. But the deeper issue that allows them to lose sight of that unity is a loss in the belief that God sees them. They are forgetting the God who knows them and loves them. So how does Paul respond? Thinking about this reminded me, I don't know if you've seen this recent uh, television commercial. Uh, I had to go back and like dig it up because it's hard to remember the brands. You can always just remember, the, you know, just remember what happens in the commercial. But there's a guy in the office, you know, by the coffee maker on the elevator in a meeting, and he's got a podcast for everything. Okay, maybe you've seen this one, but there's a podcast for that. Seeing this just made me think one thing. Message received. Okay. Message received. I'll change. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I just want to point out that the fact that he is a kind of bookish, middle-aged white guy, you know, just kind of feels offensive. Uh, I think that's uncalled for. Um, but I found this on my own. My, you know, my fan, friends and family did not have to point this out to me, but I am ready to change, okay? Today starts a new day, and I'm sorry, all right? Um, <laughs> Sometimes the truth you need to hear is hiding in plain sight, right? And it seems that Paul may have even felt the same way about the Corinthians. Because all he does is try to just remind them of a few simple things. There are some unavoidable and, be, let's be honest, hard truths that they need to recall in this moment about the message and about the messenger and about themselves, so first, the message 
that Paul delivered to them has at its core the disgusting figure of a man crucified on a Roman cross. No matter how you try and clean that up, it will always, always make the elite uncomfortable. Or worse, as Paul says, it'll be a stumbling block. It'll be folly. Secondly, the messenger is equally as embarrassing, right? (laughs) In other words, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That's not what they got. In his person, Paul was clearly an outsider, an out-of-place former Jewish Pharisee, right? And in his manner among them, like how he conducted himself, he intentionally assumed a lower rank. Not of the public intellectual who makes speeches and gets a salary, makes earnings from, you know, sounding smart. Paul actually went back to day laboring and tent making. Unlike in his recent stay in Athens, where he just came from, Paul was not going around quoting Greek poets and philosophers, making eloquent speeches to the city officials. He tells us he intentionally limits himself to preaching the cross of Christ. So whenever he speaks, he's not only an embarrassing figure, but an odd and mildly offensive presence to the local sensibilities. It's hard to boast in that. But thirdly, and this is where Paul emphasizes in our passage, the Corinthians, they themselves received his odd message with unexpected humility and under conviction from the Holy Spirit. In other words, the the, the believers, those that made up this little church, they were not like amusingly persuaded, like, hmm, this sounds great, let me have some of that. They were undone by what they heard. It laid them low. It compelled them. It kind of put them in a corner where they had to respond in humility. That's why Paul says they were called. That's his word. They were called or summoned by what they heard. And in responding, when they they answered that call... They found themselves, even the rich and powerful, standing shoulder to shoulder to the enslaved, poor, the marginalized, the left out. All there together. Now Paul doesn't remind them of these difficult things to shame them or to hurt them. No, not at all. Paul reminds them of these things because he has learned something himself that he desperately wants them to know. Despite all the ways that, tra- that Paul had tried to elevate himself with religion, that he had gotten it together and really made something of himself to cover up his inadequacies, where he came from. The truth of the cross had made itself real to him 
and actually transformed him. The same man who made his reputation by vigorously persecuting Christians is the one who writes in this letter, if I have not love, I am nothing. The same man who esteemed himself blameless according to the law is the one who writes, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Whereas Paul previously saw his Roman citizenship and his diaspora roots as a liability, a hindrance to his status, he's come to see <laughs> through experiences with churches like this one in Corinth that no status can compare to knowing the God who sees him and moves toward him in love. And he wants them to know what he has learned by being the humble, broken vessel, by being the one that was sent to them. He wants them to know and believe that the foolishness, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That is not Paul being philosophical or poetic. That is Paul being honest about his own experience. In my life, the foolishness of God is wiser, wiser than anything else. The weakness of God, the ways in which God has humbled me and made me weak is, is true strength. He wants these young believers to be able to make the same confession that he does at the end of this letter. In chapter 15, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace toward me was not in vain. He wants them to feel that, to know that deeply. And all honestly, I think we long to deeply know that ourselves. And so our second question, what do we do with these reminders from Paul? What do we do when we hear Paul say that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong? How, how would these words make us feel known and loved by God? Well, for the sake of time, I, I, I think I've just got to um, uh, sketch out what I think are the, you know, the responses to these words. I mean, I think the first one is, you know, we just, we give approval. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad it's that way. I'm glad God is that good. You know, there are a lot of people here that need to hear that, you know? that's Bless their hearts. I am so glad. I just approve of that. That's a great thing. It's going to do a lot of good. Well, approval isn't enough, right? Another response is we, we hear it, but we subtly resist. We're like, I kind of feel bad about that. You know, okay, you know, God is so good and kind to choose even the unchosen. But we gotta, we gotta um, do something with ourselves, right? We gotta make something of ourselves in response. Let's do our best. Let's see what we can come up with. That's just that kind of resistance, that sort of resistance under the surface. Like, yeah, 
I hear that, but I don't like it, feels unnecessary. I think the real response is humble surrender, just like Paul. I accept these words because I need them as much as anybody, maybe more. You know, two of these responses are very natural, and we can see them in churches all over the place. But only one of these unlocks the joy and the joyful freedom that Paul experienced, the kind of joyful freedom that he wants to inspire in us when he says things like, God's power was made perfect in my weakness. What does it feel like to say that? What does it feel like to say, for the sake of Christ, I'm content with my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is it like to be able to say that? I believe each of us want to know And the good news is it's the essence of God's call to us. When we feel him calling us, drawing us near, it's very often through the painful experience of relearning our limits, of retracing those cracks in the once perfect image we had of ourselves. To different degrees and in all sorts of different ways, this is the case for all of us, really. You know, there's a saying in preaching classes that gets repeated like every year over and over again, right? You, you want to comfort the afflicted and you want to afflict the comfortable. This is, you know. I've heard that enough to where I don't really draw much confidence from it anymore. Because the older I get, um, the more it seems like the apparently comfortable are really hiding some deeper afflictions that nobody ever sees. And those that I perceive to be afflicted have actually learned to live with it a long time ago. In other words, it's, it's kind of impossible, I think, to judge correctly who's weak and who's strong. In reality, even, even those of us who present as strong are still carrying hidden and debilitating weaknesses. I mean, what prompts us to make such a show of strength and power, if not some weaker or wounded part deep within us that we've got to protect at all costs? In this way, sometimes our weaknesses are hiding in plain sight but we're the last ones to see them. And that's why it's such good news that nothing, nothing is hidden from God. He still sees. He already knows. Christ is not intimidated by, embarrassed of, or angry about your weaknesses or my weaknesses. As Robin read for us, we've already heard him say, 
that we must become like little children in order to receive his kingdom. In fact, Christ is more familiar with our weaknesses than we are. And in that way, he is more near to them than we are. He longs to meet us there and embrace us. He touches those tender, those tender places, those soft places, so that he can come close and so that he can speak his love over our brokenness and pain, over our frailty and weakness, because this is the way of his love. May we receive him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, where else can we go? You know us better than we know ourselves. And despite our many failings, you still call us to yourself in love. Transform our weaknesses into vessels of hope. To hope in you, the God who resurrects the dead and tells us what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. Set our hope more and more firmly in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us in singing? Yeah.
God, at your, com- at your command, all things came to be, and you continue to sustain all things by your power. Yet you are near to us, though we have rebelled against you. Your mercy never fails, and you have promised that nothing can separate us from your love. Therefore, we join with your people on earth and all the company of heaven and the unending hymn. so often um, my daughter Willa will come to me and she usually has a, a, a very sincere look on her face. She comes very uh, inquisitively and curiously and she says something like this. She says, Dad, you're stronger than the bears, right? Uh, other times she'll come and she'll say, Dad, you can beat up the vampires, right? And I think there's something about her coming and the way that she comes and the curiosity that she brings and perhaps even the feelings that she holds that it speaks to how we may even come to this table today, to come sort of open-handedly, to come sort of out of a sense of our own limitations, out of our own sense of fear, out of our own sense of wonder, is there's... Am I enough? Can I, can, I, can I hold up underneath this? It's a place of weakness. And yet, that's the very place that Jesus sets this table for us. To come and to receive. To receive all of the ways that he is good. That he is right. That he is enough. That he is, strong, he is strength in this world. And he does that. Uh, we're reminded, even at a place like the cross, a place of great shame and of great loss, a place of great death, that we're reminded that it actually, Jesus, part of his power and his strength is that he is the one. He is the only one who, who had absolute power. And he gave that, he, he set that aside so that we could come and, and, and uh, be and experience his rescue. And that this table, it points us to that reality that God has substituted himself for us. 
that he has welcomed us to come and to be lifted up and to feel uh, his new life again. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this table. We pray that you would set it apart from a, a common use to a sacred and holy one, that you would come and by your spirit, that you would meet us and nourish us in our faith through this bread and this wine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, he, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. So often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I do invite you, uh, if you're coming to receive the elements, to come down the center aisle to receive both the bread and the cup. I'd ask that you'd hold on to them uh, and return to your seats so that we can eat and drink as one church family. Um, if you are not coming for the elements today, but you'd like to come forward, uh, if you just put your arm across your chest, happy to offer a prayer blessing for you. Uh, those who are serving may come forward at this time.
Christ's blood was shed to cover all of our sins. Let us drink in faith. Well, let's stand together uh, in response to this table uh, for in this responsive time of prayer and of an affirmation of our faith. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our true rest and shelter. Let us rest in your grace and promise of life as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will saying the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we will continue our worship through a time of uh, giving and, and offering to God. Um, just a, a brief welcome to those who are new with us this morning. I want to, want to welcome you. Uh, glad that you joined us for worship this morning. There is a, a time of fellowship afterwards. We'd love uh, for, to meet you and to get to know you. Please stay after. Uh, that, that time is going to be sort of in here. There's a, a table outside, just outside the front doors. We'll have coffee and bagels and things for us to enjoy. So please stick around for that. There's also a pad under the seat closest to the center aisle. If you would uh, fill that out and pass it down your row, that'd be great. We'd love to have a, a record of your visits. And also just uh, a couple notes, uh, a reminder today that there is, uh, there's gonna be a meal, uh, a meal. There, we're all gonna go over to, uh, to Jimmy's Pizza <laughs> uh, after the service. Uh, feel free to join for that. Uh, love to, to spend that time in fellowship together. And uh, also one more note too, uh, there, is, there are still a few uh, Thanksgiving baskets if you would like to do that, haven't done that so far. There's a few empty ones in the back. Uh, we'll, we will need those by Thursday at noon. Uh, and you can drop them off at the office at this point. Um, so feel free uh, to do that if you're interested. Let's continue to worship God through our gifts and offering.
Please rise for the singing of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. now God's blessing. May the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace.